Well, at this time, I'd like to invite the children heading back to Children's Church, ages 3 to 5, 3 to kindergarten. Feel free to head back. It looks like you're with Miss Maggie. And kiddos, if she starts grabbing her stomach and convulse, like just somebody run, let us know. She's scheduled for induction on Wednesday, and we're happy and entrusting them to reach that date. And a special shout-out today goes to Sean LePage for being ready in the bullpen in case we needed to run. But I think we're safe now. I think we're good. As the kids head back for Children's Church, you may feel free to turn to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. We're just going to be in five verses this morning. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, as we continue on in our sermon series through 1 Peter. First Peter 3, 8 through 12, I'm going to read these five verses. I invite you, if, you, if you're able and willing and desirous to stand up with me as we read the Word of God. I'm reading from the ESV translation, verses 8 through 12 from First Peter 3. Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we come before you as we do every week with anticipating hearts and minds, with joy, with eagerness, uh, with expectation that you would speak to us, that this wouldn't be just any normal uh, Sunday morning, this wouldn't be any, uh, a normal gathering, but this would be a gathering in which you speak and your spirit moves and your son is exalted. Uh, help us not to waste the time you've given to us, but speak powerfully through your word. Uh, guide our, our lips, our ears, our eyes, our hearts and minds, that we may see you clearly and respond in praise and worship, for you are worthy. So be with us now. Be with the children and children's church. Be with those who are not in the room with us, but are a part of us. And do your work among us, Lord, we pray. Amen. If I say... uh, it's a little test on your pop culture knowledge. If I say hashtag blessed, does that mean anything to any of you or to some of you? Right. Hashtag blessed. Uh, that was, uh, for those of you who don't know, hashtag is something that used to be called a pound sign or hash mark, and then social media took over, and a hashtag became that little thing that you tag onto words so you could search and tag them, and across social media sites, you could say, how, how do I follow themes or topics? Well, you hashtag it, and you put a word by it. And hashtag blessed was something that um, fake humble people would do when they wanted to brag about their lives on social media, 
and say, look at all the things I'm doing, and then kind of falsely in false humility say, you know, but it's just somebody else doing it, you know, it's not me, I'm just blessed, hashtag blessed. Does that make, anybody ring a bell, anybody seen this, know this, do this? I think people did it for a while, now we just mock it sarcastically for that false humility, hashtag blessed. Uh, I say that sarcastically, we're going to take a serious turn. How do we live a blessed social life? What does it mean to be blessed socially and have God's blessing in our social relationships? Not just social media, hashtag blessed, but to be blessed in actuality in our own walk with God and with others. In this section of the letter of 1 Peter, Peter's been talking about social relationships. That's kind of been the theme. Whether it be uh, the relationships of citizens to their government leaders, the relationship of slaves, servants to masters, the relationships of husbands to wives. Peter's been talking about how do we live our Christian life in the context of social relationships. And now Peter's going to speak to the whole church. Notice what he says in verse 8. Finally, all of you. So he's not just talking to specific people anymore. He's talking to all of us, the whole church. And he kind of gives his summary thoughts to the whole church as how we are to live in our relationships and interactions. And how do we do those in a God-honoring way that blesses others and that we receive a blessing in? How do we live blessed social lives? So what I'm going to give you this morning uh, from this passage are three keys to a social life blessed by God. It's very simple. Three keys to a social life Blessed by God. How do we live a good life that is blessed by God in our social relationships and our social interactions? Pastor H.B. Charles said, the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the soil of messy relationships. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the soil of messy relationships. In other words, it's really easy to be Christian alone. You know, just me and Jesus, we're tight and we're good, and I'm a pretty good person. It's when we start interacting with other sinners like us that things get messy, and the fruit of the Spirit, our evidence are shown or tested. Our true Christian character is kind of tested and grown and revealed when we interact with others who are imperfect like we are. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the soil of messy relationships. Peter knows the social life is not easy, so he gives guidance to all of us. How are we going to interact with one another? To those who are part of us, to those who are outside of us. Three keys to a social life blessed by God. I'll give them to you now, and then we'll get, I'll give them to you as we go through it. So first, love the church. Two, bless your enemy. Three, do good before God. Very simply, that's what Peter's talking about here. First, Love the church. Love the church. In verse 8, Peter talks about how we are to love each other, and he's specifically talking to those in and among the Christian community. What kind of attitudes are we to have as the body of Christ? Love the church, Peter says. This is what we're to do. Look at verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Here Peter gives five descriptions of our life together, what we are to, how we are to live 
together. And notice the way it's structured. Look again at those. There's a certain structure, I think, that Peter's doing intentionally here with those five descriptions. You'll notice, I think, that unity of mind and a humble mind are kind of parallel and go together as a pair. He's talking about what kind of mindset we're to have and unity and humility go together. And then he says, have sympathy and a tender heart or compassion which speak to our affections and our emotions, our love for one another. And then finally, what's at the center? Brotherly love. Which is really love for the brothers and sisters in the church. That's what he's getting at. So let's go through those kind of three broad categories and zero in on brotherly love. Starting at the outside, we'll work our way in. First he says, have unity of mind and a humble mind. Have humble unity. A unity literally here means to have harmony. To be able to harmonize, to walk in the same direction, to be on the same page, the same team. We know unity doesn't mean uniformity. It's not that there are no differences among you. It's that you have unity in your differences, that you bring your differences together and are on the same page. I've mentioned before that my wife and I, one of our great pastimes is watching cooking shows, cooking competition shows. We like Top Chef, and that's one of them. And one of the the contests or the games, the competitions on Top Chef once was a, a blind relay race. Where, where chefs do relay races together blind. Okay, what does that mean? So they'd split them up into teams of three or four, and you do a relay race, which every person on the same team making the same dish sequentially. But those who were waiting in line were blindfolded and they couldn't talk to each other. So one chef would go in and start the dish, and then the next person would tag in, they would take off their blindfold, they couldn't talk, and they have to go in and see, okay, what had this person done? And now it's my turn. And then the next person would go. So not talking to each other, blindfolded, go in. And of course, the competition of it, or the challenge of it is, one chef may start doing something, have a direction in mind, this is where I want this dish to go, and the other chef comes in, well, I don't know what they were doing, so I'm going to take it this direction, I'm going to add these ingredients, and... The, the challenge of it is to have a cohesive dish by the end of it. But it speaks to the challenge, the importance of being on the same team and walking in the same direction, being on the same page. You know this in sports, it doesn't work when every player on the field is trying to run a different play. If the receivers are running a route, the quarterback isn't anticipating. Unity. Harmony is vital in the church. If everyone in the church has a different agenda, a different priority, I'm always and only about missions in the church, or I'm always and only about the teaching, I'm always and only about the youth ministry, I'm always and only about children's ministry. You have all these competing dimensions of ministries in the church, and the leaders are fighting for their own way. You do not have a functional church. It's a very challenging thing in a group, in a community, to have unity. We walk in the same direction, and ultimately what Peter's talking about here is unity under Christ. That we share the same gospel, the same Lord. If we're going to have unity... We have to have humility, because unity doesn't happen by accident. You know in life there are certain people that you meet them and you just click with them. I hope you've experienced this. 
certain people you just develop fast friendships with. You just seem like you're on the same wavelength. It isn't work to be around that person. You can just be yourself, and they get you, you get them, and you just click with them. Uh, those kind of relationships are wonderful. They're, they're sometimes not common, but they're wonderful. But then there are others. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're in the church at your work. There are others who are like, man, it is just effort. I love you, but it takes work to be on the same page with you. Am I the only one? Um, Am I just a jerk? Is it me? Okay, thank you. I think we all experience that. Sometimes it's easy along with something. Sometimes it isn't. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're a better or worse person or somebody's right and wrong. It's just you're on a different wavelength and you've got to work to get together. And in order to do that, you have to have humility. You cannot think you're the only one who knows the right way, you're the only one who has the right answer, and it's about yourself all the time. You have to have humility if you're going to work together. What does it mean to have humility? Here's a pithy definition, but I think it's true. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. You've probably heard that before. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So humility doesn't mean self-loathing or self-deprecation. That's actually still self-centeredness. You're still just focusing on yourself. Humility is the ability to consider others, to not be so preoccupied with yourself, but to look to others and think, what is good for them? What are they thinking? How are they doing? It's the ability to think not about yourself, but about others. Someone has described humility or defined humility as a quickness to serve. Humility wasn't a virtue that was prized in the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't seen as a virtue. In that world, in that context, things like uh, valor and pride were valued. Humility is often seen as weak. But of course, we know this is the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quick to humility. That's why it was so shocking uh, to his disciples, I think, when he took on the clothes of a servant and washed their feet. That was unexpected in that culture. To lower yourself for the service of another. But that's what ought to describe the church and our disposition toward the other. A humble unity and then also a sympathy and a compassion toward one another. As I said, these are having to do with our emotions, our heart. Uh, sympathy is not, I don't think, just taking pity on someone. I found there's the kind of false sympathy which I, I picked up well and I learned how to describe simply when I moved to the Midwest and learned the phrase, bless your heart. Oh, that's kind of like a false <laughs> sympathy pity. Oh, bless your heart. Which can mean you know, something good or it can be said in a good way, but often it means, oh, you idiot. <laughs> a kind of condescension. <laughs> that's a pity, condescending. Sympathy is truly having a concern understanding what the other is going through and caring for them. We all want a sympathetic doctor. 
Not one who's an emotional wreck, but a doctor who seeks to understand. What are you going through? And asks questions and seeks to understand your, what you're experiencing. I think the apostles showed sympathy in Acts 6 when they determined something has to be done to care for the Greek widows who are being overlooked in the food distribution. We have to care for them. We have to understand their position and determine how to help. Being sympathetic is being mindful of the needs of others and understanding them. And we have a Savior who is sympathetic, do we not? One who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who knows our frailty, who knows our temptations to sin, knows our sorrows, and understands us. Closely related to that is compassion or tenderness in heart. So, by the way, one of my favorite Greek words, the, the root word for this compassion or tenderness in heart, it's a Greek word, splanknon. It's just fun to say. That's why it's one of my favorites. Splanknon. What is splanknon? Well, it refers to your bowels or your guts. We were, could have talked about this in our judges class this morning, but we didn't. Those of you who know, know that story. Splankton, it's your guts, it's your inner heart. You can feel it. Somebody who has guts for somebody else who has compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on people. When you looked out and you saw the lost who were like sheep without a shepherd, he cared for them. He had compassion. So we ought to have compassion on one another. Again, not a false kind of pity, but a true heartache for when those among us are struggling or hurting, that we hurt with them. We weep with those who weep. We care about those who are hurting among us. If somebody's struggling, we don't look down and say, you know, if they just had it figured out, they wouldn't be going through this. But a compassion that cares for, prays for. And all of this is getting at what Peter zeroes in on in the center, brotherly love. A love for the church. Consider who Peter's talking to here. Remember his audience. The church scattered across nations, mostly, I think, Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. So they would have come from different cultural backgrounds, worshiping different pagan gods, having different religious practices. And somehow these people are going to have to get together and get along. They're called now in Christ to come to a new culture, a new community, lay those past things down, and work together in unity and love. And this is what the church is, and this is what the church does, and this is why I think the church is remarkable and miraculous, because you take people, uh, selfish people, sinful people, arrogant people, from all over the place, who have different backgrounds, different cultures, and you bring them together and say, now you work together and love one another. And by God's grace, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, it happens. And it's an expectation. And I think our church does this. We care for one another. We sympathize. We have compassion on one another. We love one another. And we seek to have a humble unity because of God's grace among us. And Peter wants us to hear that and be compelled to it. And how do we do it? We look to Christ, and we'll talk more about that later. But I think in order to develop this love for each other, we have to do it together. What I mean by that is you can't really love the church when you're not around the church. Because something happens 
When you meet together, when you worship together, when you serve together, when you work together, and sometimes even when you disagree together and work things out together, you may find that, you know, naturally, I might not get along with that person, but we just started working together, we started serving together, we started praying together, and something weird happened, I started to love them. And I saw that they loved me. That only happens as you get together and are around the church. As long as you keep people at a distance, at arm's length, you may find that you never love them and you never will. But by God's grace, as we get together and work together and serve together, we will find that we love one another. You might say, well, I've been hurt by the church. What do you do if somebody in the church has hurt you, if others have hurt you, if others have spoken evil about you or done evil things? How are you to respond? And Peter answers that question as well. Look at verse 9. Here's a word for those of us who have been hurt, inside or outside the church. first key to a social life blessed by God is to love the church. The second key is this. Bless your enemy. Bless your enemy. How are those in Christ to respond when others treat us with cruelty, when others persecute, when others speak evil toward us or about us? According to verse 9, we are to bless our enemies. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Earlier in this book, Peter said that we are, as Christians, we've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. That's our calling. Out of darkness into light. Here also is our calling to be light in darkness. In a world of sin and evil, in a world where we may be hurt, how are we to respond? Here's what you're called to do. You are to bless. I have a game for you if you ever want to play it. I don't know if this still works. I don't know if people go to malls anymore. Uh, kids, young people, if you go to malls, here's a fun game you can play. Uh, go to a retail store, maybe especially one where the workers are on commission, and go to the back and touch the wall and see if you can get out without anybody talking to you, without anybody greeting you. It's a, a fun way to just waste time. It's hard for me because it's hard for me to sneak around. I'm not small. Uh, but for those of you who are tiny and quick, you can get to the back of the store and get out without anybody or any worker there greeting you or saying hi. Maybe you can do this on a used car lot or something. Uh, just, there's different ways you can play this game. But inevitably, somebody's going to talk to you. And in life, inevitably, somebody's going to speak evil to you. There's my dumb connection. As you walk through life, it will happen. Expect it. Somebody will say something cruel. Somebody will speak evil about you. And that's what revile means here. The definition of revile is um, abusive talk or antagonistic or evil speech. Somebody reviles you. It's going to happen. How will you respond? A couple weeks ago I mentioned that earliest Christians were maligned and reviled, and gave a couple examples. For example, earliest Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in all the 
and pantheon of gods. Early Christians were seen as threats to society because they didn't bow down before the emperor and call Caesar Lord. And Peter's saying here, you're going to be threatened, maligned, misspoken about. I saw an example of this uh, this past week. A story uh, by Rolling Stone about new Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. I don't know if you saw this. Now, I, I actually don't really know much about Mike Johnson. I don't know his politics, so this is kind of aside from all that. But according to the story about Mike Johnson, it had been found out a few years ago at a conference. Mike Johnson claims a Southern Baptist background and a profession of Christian faith. It had been found out that Mike Johnson and his son are both, they both utilize Covenant Eyes software. And if you don't know what that is, it's a uh, kind of an accountability software that tracks what you see and what you visit on the website. And you have somebody who's accountable with you. It's to keep you from looking at things you shouldn't online. And in his, I think, pastoral and fatherly care for his son, both Mike Johnson and his son use this. Now, how do you think Rolling Stone portrayed that? The article says Mike Johnson admits he and his son monitor each other's porn intake. And the conversation online was about how Mike and his son share uh, pornographic websites with each other, and what a pervert. Christians, don't be surprised when the world reviles you and maligns you and doesn't understand what it is that you do. We can expect that. So how we respond? Peter's command? Bless. Bless those who revile you. To bless means to speak favor. The Greek word, root word, this is helpful, is eulageo. Eulogy. Eugugli. That's not how it's actually pronounced. To eulogize, to speak well of. To bless means to, really, to invoke God's favor. This is how you're to respond when others speak or act cruelly toward you. Bless. I read a story in a commentary uh, about a soldier, I think maybe in boot camp, who was a believer, a Christian, and he would often, before going to bed, study the Bible, pray, normal Christian things, and he was mocked for that by others in his barracks, reviled for his Christian practice and faithfulness. And one evening while he was praying, someone across the aisle threw his muddy boot at him. So how did he respond? Instead of retaliating or fighting back, the Christian soldier took a different approach. The next morning, the soldier who threw his muddy boot found both of his boots cleaned, polished, and ready for inspection next to his bed. Several soldiers in that company were converted because of the example. Blessing when reviled. Isn't that the teaching and example of Jesus? Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. And what did Jesus do on the cross when mocked, reviled, and hated? He called for God's favor 
on his enemies. Father, forgive them. Stephen picked up on that example when he, the first martyr, was executed by stoning. He prayed the same prayer as the book of Acts records. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's how Christians are to respond to reviling this world. As an aside, I just want to take a moment to issue a caution. It's a concern I have, and I have had, it may be unwarranted, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just a concern I've had with some kind of right-leaning or Christian commentators in our world. You can fill in the name. What I appreciate about it is, or about them, or some of our social commentators, the recognition that our world is twisted and messed up. Right? Our world is evil. And it's good and a right thing when some speak truth boldly and um, without apology and clearly. That is a good thing. It is a good thing to argue in the public sphere. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. There is a place in our Christian action witness for arguing and declaring boldly and loudly what is right and wrong. So for a lot of our Christian commentators, I'm very thankful for that because the church needs to do that. That is part of the ministry and the witness of the church is declaring truth loudly and boldly. My concern is, is just I'm not sure I see a lot of 1 Peter 3.9 in it. That there may be something we're missing, and I've tried to re- reflect on this in my own teaching and preaching, is there's something I'm missing here. As we declare truth and fight against evil in our world and make arguments, let us also be sure that we keep in mind that our only goal is not to win arguments, but to win people. And to demonstrate the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And we can't do that by always yelling and always fighting. In fact, we'll never win the world that way. My concern is with our public commentators that we get into the mud and stay there and forget what our calling is, not just as conservatives, whatever that means, but our calling actually is as Christians to be like Christ. And by definition, being like Christ means blessing your enemies. Speaking well of those who revile you. Uh, When you are treated unjustly at work and when your boss fires you, you don't go to the next person and say, what an idiot that is, and let me tell you about them. Rather, our response as Christians is to bless and speak well and speak favor and invoke God's favor upon them. It requires loving your enemies even when they revile you. Our job is not just to be cultural warriors and win arguments. Our job is to be Christ followers and love our enemies. And it's hard. There's a temptation that we all feel to wage war within us and to protect our reputation, especially when we feel threatened, to retaliate. We don't want others to think poorly of us, so how can we make sure that everybody knows how right we are? That's a temptation. We don't want others to walk on us, so how can we retaliate and make sure they get theirs? And all of that temptation, very natural within us, is a temptation that doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
not only the example of Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. And what has Jesus done for us? He has secured our place with the Father. He has justified us. He has forgiven us. He has made sure that we are safe and secure in a relationship before God. And if we have that, we don't need to be threatened by anything else. If I know that my God welcomes me at his table because of the work done on my behalf by Jesus Christ, who cares what my neighbor says of me? If I've been blessed by God in such a way, then that frees me up to bless others even when evil is done towards me. So we as Christians bless our enemies. Third, and related to this, first, love the church, second, bless your enemy, and third, do good before God. And it's just my way of summing up what Psalm 34 here says. Peter's quoting Psalm 34, verses 10 through 12. And in this section, what really Peter's getting at is just do good before God. It's our call is to do, to do good to others, knowing that this is what God blesses. Verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What is the key to the good life? How do you define the good life? Social studies are actually pretty consistent on what leads to happiness. Wealth doesn't really do it. Surprise, surprise. It has been found that a certain amount of poverty actually will de decrease happiness, but once you get out of base poverty, there's really no amount of wealth that increases happiness. There's no amount of career success that increases happiness. Uh, there's no amount of like liberty and freedom and getting to do whatever you want to do that increases happiness. So wealth and power and career advancement doesn't increase happiness. What does? According to social studies, it's usually relational health. Happiness in marriages, family, and friendships. Those are the things, according to social sciences, that increase contribute to our happiness. I think scripture says something very similar here. should not be a surprise that social scientists back up, done rightly what scripture says. What's the key to a good life? According to Peter here, and according to Psalm 34, which he quotes, the key to a good life is doing good to others. Seeking peace. How do we do good? Specifically by keeping our tongues from evil and our lips from deceit. James 3 talks about this. We've actually teaching our kids to memorize James 3 because that's an important thing in your own house to be able to control your tongues. For, for kids and parents, this is helpful. And James 3 teaches us that anybody who's able to control their tongue, you control their mouth, well, they can control their whole body. You can control the whole person if you have the ability to control what you say. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here, is that if you are able to speak well, then you will do well. By doing good with our mouths and speaking goodly, if that's a word, and not speaking deceit, we'll do well. Uh, are you familiar with a figure of speech called a synecdoche? 
Anybody know what that is? A synecdoche is a part that represents a whole. So if you say, look at my wheels. You're referring to your car, but you're referring to your car with just the wheels. It's the part that represents the whole thing. And I think that's what's going on here. Peter is saying, your tongue and what you do with it represents your whole action, all of your behavior. If you're able to speak well without deceit, then it'll be representative of all your action and all that you do. And here's the key to the good life, to speak well and do good with your mouth. And to seek peace, to turn away from hatred and vengeance and evil, away from evil toward peace. Why would turning away from evil and toward peace lead to the good life? It's been a while since I referenced a Marvel movie, so I'm due. In Avengers Endgame, there's a brief moment where Captain America and Tony Stark get together again. They've been having trouble. They've been beefing. They're going back a couple movies. They've been reconciled. And finally, Iron Man, Tony Stark, rolls up and gives Captain America back his shield. And it's kind of a moment of reconciliation coming together for the sake of the common good. And then Iron Man, Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. says something brief but insightful. He says, I just want peace. It turns out resentment is corrosive, and I hate it. Dumb comic book movie, but a great truth. Resentment is corrosive. When we stay in uh, the mode of attack, the mode of seeking vengeance, retaliation, Not seeking peace, but doing evil. That kind of habit corrodes your own soul. It's not good for the other person. It's worse for you. It's corrosive resentment. So, alternatively, what's the key to a good life? Seeking peace. Seeking reconciliation. Doing good. The more I read First Peter, the more I'm convinced that Peter read Romans. There's just a lot of parallels. In fact, I think Peter wrote this from Rome, so it makes sense. But in light of that, I want you to hear what Paul says in Romans 12. It's a familiar passage, but it's touching on all the same things. Paul's saying the same thing that Peter says here. In Romans 12, starting in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are we to live a good life? Dan Doriani commentator says it this way. To summarize then, we find the good life when we follow Peter's five imperatives. Stop evil speech, turn from evil deeds, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. The core command 
is to do good to others. So here's the application as we go today and go out into the week. How are you going to do good for others? How are you going to seek peace and pursue it? Is there somebody you need to reconcile with? Is there forgiveness that you need to ask? Is there an enemy that you need to love? How are you going to do good with your mouth and speak well? Bring blessing to others. How are you going to love the church this week in harmony and unity and sympathy and compassion? Here's why this is really important. The good life that Peter's talking about is not just the good life on this earth, but it's the good life eternally. Look back down to verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Very simply, God acknowledges and calls those who do good. He is against those who do evil. It's a judgment passage. He judges those who are against him. He is against those who do evil. And those whom he calls must live a good life. And if they do, they will live with him, return. That's not works-based salvation. It's just a necessary truth that those who Christ calls must do good to others. God sees everything. He's everywhere. So we know, right, young and old kids, we know that everything we do, God sees. There's nowhere we can hide from him. But he especially sees, and his eyes are on with affection and love, those who walk according to his will who do good. And that's a comfort because you're going to do a lot of good in this life that nobody sees or appreciates. And by definition, no one can see the evil you choose not to do. So in your Christian life, you will experience and you will do a lot of hidden goodness that nobody acknowledges, nobody recognizes, and goes unseen. And you may wonder, why am I doing all this? I'm not getting recognized for it. This doesn't seem to benefit me. And here's the comfort. God sees and knows. And he hears your prayer. It's a final comfort. God is with you when you do good. And if you want a good life eternally, here's the path. Three keys to a social life blessed by God. First, love the church. Second, bless your enemy. Third, do good before God. If you want a good life now and eternally, this is the way. And now, last thing. Who's our example in this? The Lord we follow. And not only is Jesus our example, but he's the one who has done this for us. When we were evil, and when we reviled God, and when we hated him, and were opposed to him, and turned our back on God, what has God done for us in Jesus Christ? He has blessed us and done good for us sought peace with us, brought us to reconciliation with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. How and why? Because he loves us out of love and sympathy and compassion. Jesus Christ humbled himself for us. And Jesus now lives a good life, forever exalted at the right hand. I'm just going to close in this way. This will be my prayer. 
I want to read Philippians 2, a very familiar passage, but it covers all these same things, themes and these same ideas and points us to Jesus. So here's my prayer. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.